Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ricky Schlott, and I'm here again with Isaac Saul from The Tangle Newsletter to break down the latest. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always glad to be back. So today we're going to do three great topics, some scandal in the Senate with New Jersey Senator Menendez and the gold bars that are just chilling in his closet, apparently. Um, We're going to talk about the ways that our election system is broken and how we could actually make meaningful reform to help get our country back on track. And of course, tap into the like new Elizabeth Holmes trial, in my opinion, at least, with SBF showing up in court um, just today. So without further ado, let's talk about those gold bars. So my home state is not looking too proud right now with uh, <laughs> Menendez, our senator. Um, who now has a trial date set in a corruption case, which will take place uh, next May. And he and his wife, Nadine, are accused of taking hundreds of thousands of dollars of bribes, much of which came from Egyptian businessmen and officials in the form of $500,000 in cash that was stuffed in jacket pockets when they raided their homes, 13 gold bars that were found, and also some original recording from my co-worker here at The Post, he spent $300,000 at Morton's Steakhouse since 2003, which seems like impossible to me. <laughs> but anyways, he is now facing federal bribery charges and is indicted with his wife and there's mounting pressure for him to resign. So Isaac, what is your take on all this drama and how the heck this... I mean, this seems like something out of like a mob movie and not the US Senate. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, reading the details of the indictment, I would say pretty damning, about as damning as an indictment can get. You know, when uh, when the, the Trump indictment around the Mar-a-Lago documents came out, I wrote something about it that was kind of like, you know, sometimes you read this stuff and you can tell there's maybe some ambiguity about the seriousness of the crime or the evidence that you know, a prosecuting office like the Justice Department might have. And other times you read these indictments and it's pretty clear that they have somebody, you know, as close to dead to rights as possible. This certainly falls into that category for me, from my perspective. I mean, you know, we live in a country where everybody's innocent until proven guilty. And it's certainly possible that Senator Menendez presents a compelling defense at trial I would be shocked if that were the case based on what I know right now. I mean, it it reads like a pretty basic scheme, a pretty basic corruption scheme. Essentially, he gets this guy who is running a halal company the authorization to effectively be the be the king of authorizing you know, halal in the United States that is effectively ordained by the Muslim community. And in exchange, that guy gives his girlfriend a job. And in exchange, Menendez helps feed the Egyptian government some information that they probably shouldn't have and also helps, you know, advocate for their security preferences here in the United States. And then the money just starts moving around for everybody. And, you know, some of it was like comical, the the whole him Googling how much a gold bar is worth and fingerprints all over the cash they found and the text between him and his girlfriend where he's advising her not to text or email about the scheme that they're running while he's currently texting and emailing about the scheme that they're running. Um, so pretty wild stuff. I, again, you know, I, I wrote this in my newsletter. I think he should resign. I mean, I think Democrats should force him out. I'm appreciative of the fact that many Senate Democrats have called for his resignation. It took them a little longer than I would have preferred, but In this era of political corruption and this whole kind of posture they've taken with former President Trump, it would be great to see them kind of walk the walk on this kind of thing and just say, you know, we refuse to endorse a candidate like this. But um, yeah, not good. Definitely not ideal situation for him to be in. And as you said, there have been a lot of Democrats who have pressured him to resign, including Fetterman recently, but he's refusing to do so and denies wrongdoing and says, which, I mean, this is my take on this, but I don't see how the race card has anything to do with this. But he says, it is not lost on me how quickly some are rushing to judge a Latino and push him out of his seat. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think this could not be a more 
damning set of allegations, um, given what we do know and all the evidence that is pretty blatant. But what would the pathway look like if Democrats did decide to to squeeze him out? Does it require him buying in? Or is it just is it just that we're going to go into this next election cycle, which it, it sounds like the trial is a, within a month of the primary. And there is a Democratic primary challenger, Andy Kim, who's emerged to take him out. So is that the most likely path? Like what could happen from here? I would say the least friction path is that Democrats convince him that you basically step down before the the election. I mean, I think that's probably the most likely thing. You know, you don't want to go through an impeachment process for a senator, which I suppose is the other option is that, you know, you take it to Congress and you try to remove him. But the mechanisms for that are really messy. It requires getting a ton of people on the record. It probably divides the party a little bit. It's not the kind of thing as a political party heading into an election that you want in the news. So, you know, I, I think the pressure comes from Senate Majority Leader Schumer, probably from President Biden and from a coalition of Democrats who are effectively saying, you know, if you decide to run, we're going to support your challenger and we're going to do everything to stop you. And there's basically no point in like putting this to the to the electorate. So, yeah, least friction way is, you know, he realizes that the party doesn't support him anymore and he steps down. Though, like you kind of alluded to, he seems pretty defiant so far. I mean, he yeah. he has not shown any sign of interest in that. I you know, literally scoffed out loud when I read the quote about, you know, him being attacked because he was a Latino. And I was happy to see some of the other Latino members of Congress, like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, kind of call him out for that and just say, you know, there are sometimes actual issues of discrimination and you using this as an excuse when you've gotten caught in a scheme like this is like diminishing for the real instances of racism or whatever, you know, members of Congress might face. So, I think just like the worst of the political kind of response and talking point that he could have, which is take zero accountability for what he was involved in, blames it on, you know, identity politics and attacks on him and then refuses to step down even when his party's telling him that he should. Yeah. And he is also someone who has faced corruption charges in the past, but a jury was not able to come to a conclusion, which makes me feel like all of this is especially brazen, considering that he's already been called out, if not actually charged. But just in general, it might might just be like a, a bias of just recent memory, but it does feel like there's more brazen and icky stuff happening in terms of just overt corruption or lying. Or I mean, I think of like the George Santos sort of thing and stuff that in my mind, feels so far below what American politics should be like. But do you think that's just like the the bias of just looking back into the past couple of months? Or are things actually getting more soap opera-y on Capitol Hill? Two things, just really quickly. I mean, first of all, just related to his previous kind of corruption scandal, I will say that story was a lot more nuanced, in my opinion, at least in that it I think he was probably also guilty, but it it was like his involvement with a longtime friend of his and him sort of like helping this guy out via what was effectively, you know, allegedly insurance fraud, where like this story is about him literally working with, you know, through, through agents of a foreign country and making a company in his state profitable so that it could pay off his girlfriend slash wife, which to me is like way less ambiguous and way more condemnable. You know, I struggle to imagine a world where Menendez is a singular corrupt politician. I think there are a lot of them in Congress right now, at least a handful who we know have gotten where they are. George Santos is a great example through kind of lying and fibbing on their... uh, their resumes or inflating their own kind of worth and and history and value. But I do think we have a lot more insight into it now because of the 24-hour news cycle, because there's so much coverage of Congress. There's so many media outlets 
the kind of political posture of media outlets on the left and right is very antagonistic right now towards members of Congress. Like if you work at a right-leaning or left-leaning news outlet, you're doing everything you can to kind of pin a member of the other party in your news coverage. So I think we're seeing a lot more of it because there's just so much more media than ever before. And Congress has taken some steps to kind of root out some of this stuff in the last couple of decades, um, whether it's, you know, more recently, there's been this big movement to kind of limit stock trading and things like that. So I guess the optimistic side of it for me is, you know, I think we're feeling it more because we're seeing it more and we're seeing it more because there's so much more media coverage. It's a really hard thing to quantify. But, you know, there's 535 members of Congress and 538 members of Congress. And, you know, there's there's good reason to think the overwhelming majority of them are doing it because they believe in their work and they believe in public service and they want to help. So I don't want to, you know, kind of cast all of them aside as being corrupt, inept people. But um, when you have a big group of people like that, it's not hard to find a few of them who are in their positions of power, you know, via corrupt means, or they use their positions of power for corrupt means. So yeah, it's, it's hard to say, I guess, is my short answer. Yeah, I don't know, just gold bars and moms who didn't actually <laughs> die in 9-11 is just like next level. But it also might be my own personal recent memory bias, because I was out a couple weeks ago, and I was um, like mingling with some industry people. And I asked somebody who I hadn't met before what they did. They said, oh, I work for George Santos's team. And I laughed because I didn't think that was true. But it was completely true. (laughs) Like, wow, I'm like praying for you. Yeah. Um, That sounds like an uphill battle. But anyways, speaking of um, broken things, let's move to our election system, which is a very slick transition on my part. So you recently had a a newsletter with a long-form interview with Nick Troiano, who is a part of Unite America, which is an organization that is actually looking to make meaningful electoral reforms to our election system, um, taking on polarization spirals that are kind of baked into the system and gerrymandering, um, which is obviously very related. And so um, first, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you and Nick came to meet each other and just generally what his organization, his mission is. Yeah, sure. So um, we are actually both fellows for an organization called Summit that is basically launched this uh, a democracy lab program last year where they're sort of supporting different kind of mission-oriented organizations. So they were interested in Tangle as a media organization because we're, you know, trying to address polarization by bringing a bunch of news consumers under one roof. And they were interested in Nick's work because he runs a kind of nonpartisan, not kind of, a nonpartisan organization that is addressing election reforms across the country that have bipartisan support. So part of Unite America's mission, as I understand it, is to get more people involved in elections and give them a more equal voice in who we're putting into Congress, especially. And one of the ways that they want to do that is to change the primary process. So, you know, the the interview that we had largely discussed what they describe as the primary problem, which is that a very small fraction of Americans get to participate in primary elections that effectively decide 83% of Congress. Uh, and the, the functionality of that is, you know, primaries are often partisan primaries, which means if you're a Republican, you vote in the Republican primary, you're a Democrat, you vote in the Democratic primary. And because so many districts in America are so gerrymandered, the people who win those primaries often have a cakewalk, non-competitive election uh, to get into Congress. So there are very few competitive districts in America. So if you're a Republican and you live in a heavily gerrymandered Republican district, winning the primary is the big election because you're going to probably crush the Democrat opponent you have. So because few, such a small slice of the electorate participates in the election, In the primary election, often they're the most partisan people. So in a Democratic primary, the most progressive voters are typically the ones who are voting in that primary election. They're the ones who feel strongest about politics, the most dialed in, yada, yada, yada. And the result is that 
you get more progressive or left-leaning politicians. And the same is true on the conservative right-wing side. And so, you know, from their position, it kind of makes the polarization of Congress and our country worse. And so they have some reforms that they think could change that and address the primary problem. And uh, I was a little bit skeptical of some of the reforms going into, you know, our conversations and hearing about them. But I've known Nick for a little over a year or two now, and we've had a lot of conversations about the work that they're doing. And I've watched some of the work that they're doing come to come to life in real actual elections. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that they're kind of above the target and have a really good idea about how to solve some of the problems that that we've witnessed. Yeah, something like 83% of elections are dictated by primaries and like 8% of voters actually are participating in them. And this is something that is, I think, I mean, I'm I'm friends with Andrew Yang and totally on board with his electoral reforms, which do sound quite similar. And it's it's something that I think like the biggest challenge that that he faces is that you have to like, sit down and really engage with like electoral politics and voter demographics and it's just not a sexy soundbite sort of thing to put on cable news like you and it's it's never really quite as newsy and so I think that the public awareness is a big issue on this front because it is something like ranked choice voting has been on ballots recently and it's something that you could have a ballot measure for and and get popular support for but there is just a lack of awareness and honestly like it it does sometimes seem like a snooze fest until you realize like oh no this actually is meaningfully impacting the people who end up in office in a way that like I I see it all the time in New York because I I had to re-register from New Jersey to New York um, like in the past year or so um, because I fully moved here. And I had been a registered Republican and then an independent in New Jersey. And then now um, I considered becoming a Democrat in New York, even though I've never once in my life identified as a Democrat because we have, we're one of like, I think seven or something like less than 10 states, I want to say, that have completely closed primaries across the board in presidential and local elections. And here in New York, it's like if the if you're not voting in the Democratic primary for mayor, for example, which is something that matters to me as a young woman living in a city who's concerned about crime. And like, I, I do think that that's certainly on the local level. My my vote matters far more than being a more conservative person in a blue state. Um, but if you're not in the, if you're not voting in that Democratic primary, like Curtis Lee was not going to show up with his beret as much as I <laughs> like the guy. He's just not going to save the day for for us and the subway riders. And so this is something that I think is so critical to actually shifting the needle, especially because there's, I think it's 49% of voters today, it's record numbers who identify as independents. And I don't think there's, when more and more people are waking up to a system that isn't working for them and like the red blue binary, it, it's so counterproductive and so crazy to me that we quarantine those voters in the middle. And then force them to pick between two awful choices, which I feel like we have like the the perfect example of how that can happen with our upcoming presidential election that is coming down the pipeline in which the majority of voters do not want Trump or Biden to run again. And yet that's almost definitely who we're going to end up with. So break down from like the local level to the presidential level, like how is opening primaries something that can fix local elections and all the way up through presidential elections? Or is it going to be like a state-by-state battle? How how does Nick see that playing out? Yeah, so I, th- their focus is definitely at the state level, but related to federal elections. So, you know, the the kind of proof of concept for them that they have is the recent Alaska election, which they were able to get a ballot initiative that implemented a nonpartisan primary in Alaska's congressional and gubernatorial races. And then they also got a instant runoff uh, election mechanism for the general, which is, you know, effectively ranked choice voting. And so the, the outcome of that election, which we talked about in our interview that I found, you know, incredibly fascinating was they got a moderate Democrat elected to the House. They got a kind of anti-Trump Republican and Lisa Murkowski elected to the Senate. And they ended up with a Trump-backed governor Republican elected to the, the governor's mansion. So 
you know, the same group of voters basically did that for the entire state. And the outcome kind of reflected the diversity and the the kind of moderate nature of the typical median Alaskan voter. So from their perspective, they were like, this was a huge win because in the previous system, we probably would have ended up with one party and partisan candidates sweeping those elections. And instead, we got a really diverse set of leadership and representatives in representing Alaska at every level of the government, basically. I find that pretty convincing. You know, I think that's a a really effective proof of concept for them. I'd also say the simple messaging of what they're arguing is, is something I find really, really compelling, which is every voter should get to vote in every election. And, you know, you hear that out loud and you think, oh, well, yeah, we have that. Like, we live in America. And it's like, no, actually, you don't. And a lot of Americans assume that's the case, but they don't realize it, that it's it's not. That, you know, we are, you know, half of voters in a lot of states are just boxed out of the other side's primary race and have no say in who that candidate's going to be. And um, I think it makes intuitive sense that everybody should be able to vote in all of these elections. And so from a kind of political standpoint and winning that argument, I think that's a really powerful message and one that, uh, you know, if they, if they can get in front of enough Americans, I think they'll get a lot of momentum for. Yeah. And I think there's, there's definitely like um, a gradient of open primaries. Like there are some states where independents are like, you can, you know, in, in New York, for example, you could say, well, if there just aren't as many Republicans and they can just have their B, little B team primary, but then independent voters are completely sidelined and just put on the bleachers for the entire beginning of the process. Whereas there are other states where they do have partisan primaries, but independents can decide which primary election to participate in, which I think is a, a much healthier iteration of that. Um, and, and then there's also the ranked choice voting component as well, which you mentioned, which we do have here in New York. I don't think that helps a ton considering that if you're not a Democrat, it doesn't really matter how you rank it. But I did think that Eric Adams coming out of that election was probably a pretty good test case of how somebody who is relatively more moderate within a party can prevail just based on the fact that the average voter tends more towards him when they're not put through a like black and white here, this person or that person sort of process. Um, we did have a lot of hiccups on that front. I think that's probably in terms of counting ballots and actually tabulating it, the biggest case against it. But I'd be curious to hear, firstly, well, I guess I'll ask you this after, but firstly, what? how does, in your view, how does ranked choice voting work into fixing broken elections? And does that is that a route that you think gives you similar hope um, is it something that you want to do alongside open primaries? Like, how do these two pieces work together? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I'll emphasize that I'm not a uh, I'm not an activist necessarily campaigning for this so much as I'm someone who's hearing the pitch and finding it compelling. I think the the case for ranked choice voting for me is that we shouldn't be boxed into the kind of duopoly that we are boxed into in presidential elections. And when it comes to kind of House elections and Senate elections and state and local elections, we should be able to say that there's more than one candidate that we support. And we should be able to feel like voting for one candidate is not necessarily a vote against other candidates. And that concept is something I find really compelling about ranked choice voting. It's a way to make sure that your voice is heard, even if the person that you cast the ballot for does not end up being the person who gets elected. I think it gives everybody a little bit more security in their vote. And, you know, given the results we have in our current system right now, where, as you mentioned, you know, we have presidential candidates who people don't want, overwhelming majority of Americans don't want. We seem destined for that. And there's, you know, to me, it's totally insane that there's no recourse for like the 70% of Americans who don't want to see a Trump-Biden rematch because of the system we have. And then you look at the approval ratings for Congress and how people feel about their representatives, which 
are often really low now, sometimes in the teens. And it's pretty clear to me that Americans as a whole don't feel like they're getting what they want. So looking at the way we can reform the system, I think alternatives to what we have now are pretty strong. And this is kind of the case that Nick made to me that I find really compelling, which is just like, basically every other alternative system we have offers something that's slightly too much better than the current system. And there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, it's it's not like the current system is inherently broken, but it's become broken because of things like gerrymandering and the ways that, you know, national parties put candidates forward and back candidates. We've taken a lot of choice away from voters and we have politicians and political parties who are choosing their voters rather than voters who are choosing their politicians and political parties. So to me, ranked choice voting is an improvement. And if, you know, if it's paired with something like an open primary, I think all the better, basically. Yeah. And I want to underscore one thing that you kind of mentioned earlier in that answer that I think is the most critical part of the ranked choice voting component personally, which is I just think it changes the incentive structure for potential candidates to run. Because I think one of the things that I, I mean, I'm hearing this constantly in this election cycle where nobody's really happy with the two options that seem increasingly likely, but then anybody who might want to challenge them or come in through a, like a cross party ticket or an independent run or a libertarian party run is immediately disparaged by both sides for being a spoiler candidate and taking votes away. And, you know, you hear that in pretty much every election cycle. And if you have ranked choice voting, that fundamentally undermines that accusation. And it actually would empower people to support candidates that sound more like them or sound more like what they think is a better direction for the country without thinking that they're wasting their vote or without feeling as though um, that candidate is inevitably responsible for whoever does win because they pulled from one side or the other. And I I think that's an exhausting um, accusation that know, would be undercut pretty much instantaneously if we did implement ranked choice voting. And one other thing I want to get your take on that I think is interesting right now on the election front out of San Francisco, which actually California has some pretty progressive election reform measures that they put in place. And San Francisco does, particularly with their local elections, where London Breed is now being challenged by several Democratic competitors And they have a system which is a top two election system, which basically means that the two most popular candidates coming out of the primary cycle are able to face off against one another, even if it's two Democrats. So you're not going to have like we have in New York, like Eric Adams and Curtis Lewa and like Democrat and Republican are two people that you basically know who's going to win either way. And London Breed is a particularly unpopular mayor right now who could potentially face off in a general election with another Democrat. I think there's like a Levi Strauss heir that has recently risen to challenge her. But that concept to me of a progressive city being able to have two Democrat options that might be different types of Democrats facing off against each other is even more healthy, in my opinion, than just having an open primary or just having ranked choice voting. Like it it seems pretty logical that you'd have just the two most popular candidates facing off in the general. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. I mean, I uh, I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania now. And, you know, we had a Democratic primary that was obviously the the biggest deal in the entire election cycle here. And we came out of it with, you know, somebody who got 20% of the vote, basically, of Democratic voters and is now going to go destroy a Republican challenger when what would have really been awesome was if, you know, we had six or seven candidates and they all got, you know, somewhere between five and 20% of the vote. And we took the top two vote getters out of that and put them against each other in a general election. I mean, it, it makes way more sense to me. And also, you know, if you're not doing the partisan primaries, it makes it easier to have a system like that because, then the you know the republican candidate in the race can't say that they were totally left out of that kind of vote total and opportunity to challenge people i mean um philadelphia actually has a lot of a pretty pretty healthy conservative 
base of voters and conservative movement, but they're still outnumbered, you know, something like five to one or something like that in the city. And so um, it it makes total sense to me. I, you know, generally speaking, I think the philosophy should be like, let's get the most favorable, popular politicians against each other in a final 1v1 race. And or let's make sure that, you know, the process we use to get to that point is something where people aren't just punching one button for one person. They get an opportunity to speak on all the candidates, uh, which I think both, you know, nonpartisan primaries and ranked choice voting allow people to do. Well, it sounds like we need to like set Nick and Andrew Yang up. But um, <laughs> there's there's not a lot of daylight between us on on this front. I think couldn't be more obvious in this day and age that electoral reform is very necessary. And it's amazing how much of this is just like, it often to me feels like there's a sensitivity around talking about something as as fundamental as changing the way that we do elections, like as though it's would require amending the constitution or going back on our, our fundamental principles. But there's so much like precedent and layers of layers of dysfunctional crap that we've just inherited on this front that aren't actually fundamental core values of our democracy that we very much could peel back if people paid attention a little bit more, in my opinion. But let's talk about one more shit show, for lack of a better word, which (laughs) is the SBF uh, trial that is happening right now. The 31-year-old crypto billionaire and former head of FTX is presently in, in court and he is facing charges of like basically a Bernie Madoff type scam to which he's pled not guilty, um, seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. And essentially, this guy who is living this lavish life in this sprawling empire that he set up in the Bahamas, essentially to get around uh, a lot of regulatory issues with crypto here in the US, um, and a whole suite of luxury real estate and a bunch of very cozy relationships with politicians who he donated more than $100 million to in some across the board. Um, He essentially used billions of dollars of customer funds to um, pay his own personal finances to cover the loss of a hedge fund called Alameda Holdings that he also effectively had control over, but controlled via a pseudo girlfriend figure of his. And then covered while he was covering up the scheme, defrauded investors on a mass scale and essentially has left a lot of people penniless in investing with him. And so what is your outlook on how this case is going to go and and whether SBF has any chance of actually getting off unscathed as he continues to claim that he's totally innocent here? Yeah. So, uh, you know, first of all, this world is definitely a little bit outside my strike zone, but I am uh, someone who has been kind of intimately interested in and at one point even invested in the the crypto landscape so i've been following this story with a ton of interest just because you know it touches a lot of the the stuff that i used to have my money in and a lot of people who i've been following for a long time who are sort of like the oracles of what the future of the american financial system was going to be and sbf was one of them i mean it's it's kind of hard to overstate his power and influence in this space before all this happened. I mean, he literally was like the LeBron James of crypto. He was the child prodigy that was going to sort of usher this industry and this space into the future. So to see him in court is pretty nuts. One of my favorite reporters and writers in all of publishing is Matt Levine from Bloomberg. And he's kind of my go-to guy for anything related to the financial markets and financial system. And he had a piece that came out actually yesterday that was very straightforwardly headlined, which was, you know, SBF's defense will be very hard in court. And I think that pretty much sums it up. I mean, the the general contours of it are, you know, defensible. And if you kind of compare what happened to something like a bank run where a bunch of people freak out and they try and get their money all at once and he was operating an exchange. So there's collateral and some of the money is being held in different places and all these things. And the there isn't always going to be the liquid cash to give everybody their money. And 
if you sort of pitch it or frame it like that to a jury, I suppose you might find some sympathetic ears. But as you said, when you sort of get to the nitty gritty of where the money was and what they were doing with customers' investment, which was essentially using it as collateral for all of his other risky bets in this other hedge fund. And then the fact that like that hedge fund also was basically bankrupt and didn't have any money because it was dumping a bunch of its money into like FTSX knockoffs and crypto coins and all these like pseudo fake products and holdings that they were supposed to have. I mean, it's really damning. And, you know, I say that as somebody who like, if I had been writing about the crypto world three or four years ago, which I'm very glad I wasn't, probably would have written really favorably about someone like Sam Bankman-Fried because, you know, publicly everything we understood about him was that he really was somebody who was genuinely trying to do something good. And, you know, I suppose it's possible that's still true. Maybe he got into this position through kind of like good intentions, but ended up getting way over leveraged and that can snowball quickly and just made worse and worse decisions. But it's sort of hard for me to hold on to that view of him anymore once you kind of read the details of what was happening. I mean, it really does seem like a straight up fraud scheme. And in the end, you know, the reality of the situation, the consequences of his actions is, like you said, thousands and thousands of people have lost their life savings. They've gone completely broke. I mean, the people who really believed in him were the ones who were most heavily invested in the crypto space. And the entire thing, you know, the floor collapsed. So um, it's a it's a horrible story for for them, especially. And I think like, you know, there's been so much focus on him as a person and, you know, his all the different things that his hands were in from like, uh, you know, investing in politicians and investing in media space and investing in all these different companies and but like the reality of the situation is this story is about the people who trusted him and put their money in this exchange he built and uh, lost everything because of the decisions that he made. So I'm hoping they get some justice and hopefully some financial compensation as well for what happened um, because, you know, it's like life ruining stuff, which is really horrible. Yeah. And you got out in time in your investment in this company? No, I was never invested in um, the okay. exchanges that he had, but I, I, I was in a situation, you know, I, in probably 2014 or 2015, had a friend who was like deliriously obsessed with this new crypto um, blockchain system called Ethereum that nobody had heard about at the time. And it was like the future of Bitcoin and the next big thing. And he like convinced me to put a thousand dollars of my very limited savings I had as a journalist into it. And uh, it was the best investment I ever made. I mean, it turned into like $25,000, which like you don't typically 25x your money when you invested in something, especially not in three or four years. But he was just kind of very ahead of the curve. And um, thankfully, I had a lot of people who were like, you should take that money and run because that's never going to happen again. Um, which I did, but always sort of kept my eyes on the space and watched the crypto space closely because, you know, I was kind of a believer in a lot of the future. And um, SBF was someone who in this space was like, you know, he was considered the future and he was going to help bring the kind of like crypto as a currency to the world through like re real world applications of the blockchain and um, use cases for this kind of stuff. And this exchange was kind of part of that. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it really is truly nuts to see him in court after everything I've read about him and seen and my perception of him. I mean, it's kind of like, um, it's hard to, hard to fathom or process really. I mean, he's that big of a deal and it's that big of a story. So yeah, but he seems guilty. <laughs> it seems not not good for him. I mean, I think the the question of how he's going to defend himself is very complicated, and um, I don't think a jury is going to be sympathetic to to the story that they hear. Any like longer term listener to this podcast knows that I'm 
a crypto bro who's just shut up more recently. <laughs> but it's still like in my DNA to want a a decentralized future and or at least in like some more down to earth world return to the gold standard or something that's completely impractical. But I would say like the thing that at least from my vantage point that I've never totally understood about him as a figure is how he somehow managed to like curry favor and praise from corners of the world where, or at least corners of like the financial world and the political world where people and politicians and and commentators like Jim Cramer's calling him the next JP Morgan on CNBC, these people who are generally not at all friendly to the, the crypto world or to the concept of a decentralized currency that couldn't be controlled by the, by a central government force in the same way, like generally hostile people who somehow were totally sold on this guy. And I think now that we have more of an insight into how much money he was pouring into political donations, how he was posturing himself as this effective altruist, but then at the same time, like after after the cover was blown, he was DMing with a, a journalist on Twitter, which never seems like a wise way to conduct an interview. But I guess he just wasn't listening to anyone. And he was like sending like he he in his messages and stuff like laughing about like not even ha ha would be bad enough, but he he um, laughing kind of cavalierly about what he did. And and at one point in that exchange he said to her that he was parroting the woke shibboleths that people wanted to hear and i mean apparently very aware of the fact that if he was being politically correct and virtuous and and saying i'm gonna i'm i'm going to affect change and blah 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 but there's really nothing behind it that that somehow got him to the point where he was like rubbing elbows with some of the most powerful people in the world who otherwise had no interest in in the rest of the crypto sphere or the libertarian world to begin with from your vantage point as someone who did follow him and did see him as an influential figure like how how did he manage to ascend to those heights despite the generally hostile environment that he launched into yeah it's a great question i mean I, I think you touched on it a little bit in your answer at least based on a lot of the reporting that i've read about him you know, both before and after this scandal, which is that he really did manage to get in a lot of doors and get in the room with a lot of really important people. And I think in those moments, he was really good at pitching his vision of the future of, you know, the crypto space and this technology and blockchain as being something that was really altruistic and had the potential to do a lot of you know, tangible good for the world and the economy. And, you know, anytime like you can tell people that you're at the forefront of something like that, I think you're going to be received favorably. And, you know, sort of to your point about, you know, your feelings towards a decentralized currency or whatever. And then also the fact that he you know, curried favor with a lot of people using, as he said, like the woke nonsense. You know, I think he he was in a position where crypto, generally speaking, appeals to people across the political spectrum for different reasons. And I think he knew how to play on that. But maybe the most important thing, honestly, from my perspective, is that when you watch him talk or you are, you know, you see him in interviews, he really just seems like a dork. I mean, he he seems kind of innocent. He's like got this really nerdy, socially awkward, like just persona and vibe where you're like, oh, this guy's brilliant. And like one of those people who's like so smart that he's socially awkward and like struggles to kind of be personable. And so it feels like what you're seeing is really, really genuine. And I think that's how I felt about him when I saw him interviewed, you know, before and even after this happened. I mean, I remember, I think he did a like a live interview with Bloomberg or something, mm-hmm. you know, shortly after this whole sort scandal. Sort of way of interviewed him, yeah. Yeah, and and he just like he still seemed sort of innocent. Like he just seemed like I messed up. I made these mistakes. Like you know, I things just got a little bit out of control, and it was kind of like the person I'm seeing wasn't 
he's not like this uh, arrogant kind of hedge fund, like I'm here to make money and, you know, get, like fill your pockets with Benjamins and whatever. There's none of that. It's like, I'm this really smart, genius, dorky guy trying to figure out how to do something good for the world. And I think his personality fit really well with that brand. And I think that's part of what made all of this so shocking. And then, like you said, the DMs with you know these journalists on Twitter and stuff and all the reporting that came out after about him and what it was like working for him and stuff like that sort of made it seem like, oh, maybe that was all bullshit. And like, you know, I'm a rube for falling for it. But I do think like his natural organic persona just feels so kind of not threatening that it's easy to sort of fall for the stuff that he's saying and what his pitch is. That's funny because I have like the complete opposite reaction to him and his mannerisms (laughs) and stuff like that. He's super fidgety and like to the point where it always felt to me like he's could be hiding something. But I also think there's like for someone who's who's positioning himself as as someone who is going to shape the social order and and use his effective altruist power to reshape and reform society in a better image that he should have better social skills or a better understanding of how people function together in a society like he didn't give me the vibe of someone that I'd like to hand over the George Soros-esque reins to reform society in his image I don't know he just felt like his his lack of social awareness did not make me feel as though he had a great grasp on on what his impact would do to society in general as he is has kind of like mouthing all these platitudes about bringing us to a better future. But one final question for you on this front is, obviously the crypto space is not being helped in any way, shape and form by the fact that one of the most major and certainly the most public player is now uh, being brought to public shame in this way. So what do you think the the outlook is on the crypto space? I know that's a very speculative question to ask, but in the short term, obviously it's hurting. Do you think it comes back to any degree? And this is just one of the many dips that, that crypto goes through? Yeah. I mean, like I, you know, from a, like the financial value of crypto or whatever, that kind of speculation, I, you know, have no comment on and don't want to offer any kind of uh, outlook or advice or perspective. You know, this might actually be a place where, where you and I disagree a bit, but generally I think because of what's happened with FTX and, you know, Celsius and all these other kind of crypto exchanges and place where people were buying and trading and selling crypto that have turned out to just basically be, you know, fraudulent schemes. I think the increased government regulation is actually probably going to help the space long term. Um, I think there like has to be a little bit of oversight, both to prevent this kind of thing from happening in the future, but also to sort of reinstate some institutional trust from the the consumer side. So, you know, I I think the technology, like the actual blockchain technology and, you know, the idea that we have a way to move currency and value in a decentralized manner is still something that's really valuable and that there are a lot of potential use cases for. So, <laughs> There's so much money behind it and there's so much enthusiasm behind it and there's so many smart people involved. I am generally of the opinion that they're going to figure it out and the future is still bright, despite the fact that like, basically from a public relations perspective, it's been an absolutely horrible year or two. You know, when I, I try not to do political prognosticating a lot, but one of the things that I got really right during the COVID era, during the early days of COVID, was the idea that we would have vaccines on like a really accelerated timeline. Um, when a lot of people are saying, you know, it'd be two or three years or maybe five years till people were getting vaccines. I was writing in my newsletter and commentating that, you know, I think this is going to happen a lot quicker than that simply because the entire world needs this and the entire world wants it. And there's so much money behind it. There's so many smart people who are trying to solve this thing 
And like, regardless of whether you think the vaccines were good or bad or how they turned out or whatever, the reality is like the process in part due to, you know, Trump and his administration cutting as much red tape as they could, the kind of private sector investment that was involved, all the smartest minds in the world being dedicated to solving this thing. It happened literally, you know, at a fraction of the, in a fraction of the period of time that all the quote unquote experts said it would. And I bet on that just because I was like, yeah, there's like way too many smart people with tons of money and funding who are trying to figure this out. And I think there's a lot of smart people with tons of money and funding who are trying to figure out how to mainstream cryptocurrency and trying to figure out ways to use the blockchain technology in a way that's, um, that's you know, effective and useful and does a little good for society. So my bet is on those people who are all way smarter than me, at least in the long term. But um, yeah, I mean, again, from a PR perspective, this trial and the last year or two is going to tell a bunch of consumers that putting your money into these exchanges is really dangerous. And crypto is still like a, a bullshit commodity or currency or whatever you believe it is. And um, so a lot of people are going to stay away. And that's that's bad for the market. It's bad for the value of crypto. And then it's also bad for all the projects and use cases. So um, yeah, short term, not good. Long term, I bet on like the nerds and the rich guys who are trying to figure it out. Yeah, I I think one effect of this is just going to be a a real safening off of these like weird little experimental offshoots in the crypto space. And I think attacking towards like something like Bitcoin with a, a decentralized ledger and, and like something where people, you know, you're not just putting your money into this conceptual void. Like there's the actual decentralization of the entire system. So I think that at least in my opinion, that's more of the future and a lot of these weird wild west experimentation iterations of the crypto blockchain sphere are on their way out. But I think that is all that we have for today. Um, Thank you everyone for listening. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. It helps out a lot. And check out uh, Isaac's work at Tangle and sign up for his newsletter. And we will be back here with a new episode next week. Thanks, Ricky. Yeah, thank you.